0: This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome, welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth a scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Today, using the lens of sport, we're going to explore the African American and the Native American experience. Are lacrosse's origins? What impact, if any, have sports played in assimilating Native Americans into American society? The preeminent Native American game is lacrosse. No one knows the game's origins. It is most intimately associated with the people of the Northeastern woodlands, in particular, the Haudenosaunee, an Iroquoian-speaking people who the French called the Iroquois League and the English the Five Nations. The Haudenosaunee, which means the people of the Longhouse, well, they live in New York State. From east to west, the five nations of the Iroquois, of the Haudenosaunee, are the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, and the Seneca. Lacrosse is North America's earliest known team sport. Among the Haudenosaunee, the first lacrosse game dates to approximately 1100 A.D., Early versions of the Native American lacrosse included crowds of men using wooden sticks with net pockets attached and small balls made of deer hide. They competed in open fields that could cover miles and games might last days. French Jesuit missionary Jean de Brebeuf was among the first Europeans to see a a lacrosse game. He named it lacrosse because the stick with which the players played Had a leather pocket at its end, which to his eyes resembled a bishop's staff, which the French called a cross, hence, an individual stick was lacrosse. In American sporting culture, until recently, lacrosse was a niche sport played in Native American communities and, more generally, along the East Coast. Since the 1990s, however, it has become the fastest growing high school and college sport. Its growth has been strongest in suburban schools. In the Erie area, it flourishes at McDowell, Fairview, and Cathedral Prep. Regardless of lacrosse's newly earned status as the middle and upper-middle class sport of choice, one of the best men's lacrosse teams in the world remains the Haudenosaunee's Nationals Men's Lacrosse Team. Founded in 1983 by the Grand Council of the Haudenosaunee as the Iroquois Nationals, in 2022, the team changed its name to... The Haudenosaunee Nationals. The Haudenosaunee are currently the third ranked men's lacrosse team in the world. It should come as no surprise that number one and number two, respectively, are the United States and Canadian men's teams. They will all meet again in June 2023 at the World Championships in San Diego. Athletic quality aside, attracting more headlines has been the Haudenosaunee team's passport issues. Using their Haudenosaunee passports, in 2010 they were denied entry to England and, in 2018, had difficulty entering Israel to compete in the world championships. In use since 1923, the current Iroquois passport evolved from negotiations in 1977 with the United States State Department, Canada, Britain, and other countries. Since it involves the legal status of indigenous tribes within the United States, The passport issue remains a muddle. The legal issue raises the question of whether or not the indigenous nations are sovereign countries within the United States with the inherent authority to govern themselves, or are they domestic-dependent nations as defined by the United States legal system, which determines the relationship between tribal governments and the federal and state governments? If sports is a lens into American history and culture, then the Haudenosaunee's Passport issue opens up the fraught question of the relationship between Native Americans and the larger American society. That question has two subsets fraught with deep historical resonance. Those two questions ask, Are the indigenous people American citizens, or are they citizens of their tribal nation, or are they both? Regarding, are they both, raises the emotionally charged question of cultural assimilation. The question of citizenship is comparatively easy to answer. Since the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, all indigenous people are citizens of the United States. Not all indigenous tribal leaders supported American citizenship, fearing it would erode tribal integrity and, ultimately, tribal and national survival. Since many indigenous tribal nations hold land in common and require that their members maintain tribal citizenship, indigenous people are granted dual citizenship. They are citizens of both their tribal nation and the United States. Developing the legally snarled citizenship question is the emotionally charged question of cultural assimilation. The question goes back to the beginning of the struggle between Europeans and the indigenous people of North America. In broad strokes, from the European perspective, there were three courses of action. One, either eradicate the indigenous people, a polite way of saying ethnic cleansing, or two, Accommodate them by setting aside land for them, what ultimately became the reservation system, or three, assimilate them into Euro-American culture. From the indigenous people's perspective, the issues were similar if inverted. Fight to the end, risking extinction. Or make a separate peace and retreat to tribal enclaves, essentially the reservation system or make peace with the Europeans and assimilate into Euro-American culture. On both sides, there were those who advocated for each position. In the end, the result was a bloody tangle of all three. Sport sheds a light on two facets of these issues. First, the well-intended but ultimately horrendously misguided attempt by the Indian school movement to make Europeans of the indigenous people. These efforts go all the way back to Christian missionary John Eliot and the Nipmuc people in Massachusetts, and Eliot's establishment of praying towns of converted Nipmucks, and the Christian Creek Indians in what is now Georgia and Alabama, devastated by Andrew Jackson and the Trail of Tears. There are multiple other examples, all succumbed to settler land hunger. Second, less physically devastating but still culturally destructive was the popular culture appropriation of indigenous names and symbols as mascots and nicknames for sports teams. By the way, the lilting, if not haunting, music we've been hearing is from Mary Youngblood's album, Beneath the Raven Moon, Youngblood is a Native American flutist, and this track, released in 2002, is one of her most popular with almost over 70,000 views on YouTube. A beautiful song, Above the Mother Earth sings about the interconnectedness of all things. Most Americans know very little about the 19th and 20th century Indian boarding schools whose primary focus was to civilize or to assimilate indigenous children into Euro-American culture. In the late 20th century, this came under intense criticism. Setting aside that anachronistic judgment, stepping back and trying to understand what U.S. Army Lieutenant Richard Pratt, who founded the Carlisle Indian School, to try to understand what he and others thought they were doing, well, that provides a more balanced insight. Misguided as they might have been from a 21st century perspective, they opposed those who wanted to eradicate the indigenous people. And there were many who did, from General Philip Sheridan, who infamously said, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, to Wizard of Oz author L. Frank Baum, who in his journalistic days advocated exterminating Native Americans. Opposing these forces, Pratt and others in the Indian school movement wanted to assimilate the indigenous people into Euro-American culture. Pratt's motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. They taught the indigenous children English, industrial, and other skills, and how to live and function in Euro-American society. Their methods were harsh. Their results were mixed. Over 10,000 children from 140 tribes attended Carlisle between 1879 and its closure in 1918. One might ask, what has any of this to do with sports? Well, in the early 20th century the Carlisle, Pennsylvania Indian School fielded one of the greatest intercollegiate football teams of all time. They invented the handoff fake and the overhand spiral throw, the forward pass. Coached by the legendary Glenn Pop Warner, who would later win national championships at Pitt and Stanford, Carlisle competed against the best and beat the major intercollegiate powers of the day, Harvard, Penn, Cornell, and Army. In 1907, before 20,000 plus fans in Philadelphia, Carlisle blasted the powerful Penn team 26 to 6. In 1911, in one of the great upsets in college football history, Carlisle defeated the era's greatest powerhouse, Harvard, 18 to 15. Jim Thorpe scored all Carlisle's points. In 1912, Carlisle defeated West Point, 27 to 6. Yes. 22 years after, 22 years after the last Indian Army battle at Wounded Knee, the Indians beat the Cavalry 27-6. to 6. The 1912 West Point team featured nine future generals, including President Dwight D. Eisenhower and General of the Army Omar Bradley. On the Carlisle side were future professional football players Jim Thorpe, Pete Kalick and Joe Goulian, Grantland Rice. One of the first of the great sports writers said, I believe an all-American, all-Indian football team could beat the all-time Notre Dame team, the all-time Michigan team, or the all-time anything else. Take a look at a backfield like Jim Thorpe, Joe Guyon, Pete Callick, and Frank Mount Pleasant. Thorpe himself is arguably the greatest athlete of the 20th century. A sack and fox Indian from Oklahoma. Thorpe was a college All-American football player on Walter Camp's teams of 1911 and 1912. At the 1912 Olympics, he won the gold medal in the decathlon and the pentathlon. From 1913 to 1919, he played Major League Baseball for others, for, among others, the New York Giants and Cincinnati Reds. He played professional football from 1919 to 1925 for the Canton Bulldogs, NFL champions in 1922. He was a founder and first president of the American Professional Football Association, which evolved into the NFL. He also excelled in basketball, boxing, lacrosse, swimming, and ice hockey. Thorpe was the first person elected to the Professional Football Hall of Fame. To this day, the most valuable player trophy in the NFL is the Jim Thorpe Trophy. A member of the United States Marine Corps, Billy Mills, though a member of the Oglala Lakota people, was the first and remains the only American to win the Olympic gold medal in the 10,000 meters, the 10K. Still active in the fight for Native American rights, Mills was co-founder of Running Strong for American Indian Youth, an organization that helps Native Americans meet their basic needs. Mills also spoke out against sports teams using Indian themes and images as nicknames, logos, and mascots. He particularly worked against the Washington commander's former use of the nickname Redskins. Of all the Indian-themed names, Redskins was the most offensive. Most Americans didn't know, many still refused to know, that it signified, as Mills points out, the indigenous people's own holocaust, the death of millions after the arrival of the Europeans. As Mills himself said, Redskins is among the most vulgar for us. Bounties were paid for Indian scalps. X number of dollars if you brought in a female scalp of a redskin. X number of dollars if it were a child. X number of dollars if it were an adult man. Using Indian names and themes for sports mascots is a contentious issue. As someone who was once a Cleveland Indians fan since before I knew how to read, I came to understand the issue late. But, upon reflection... The story that the team was named after Louis Sakalexis, a Penobscot Indian who played for Cleveland, is irrelevant. It is not for us to decide if something we say is offensive. It is for the person to whom it is said, or the person about whom it is said to determine. If African Americans say the N-word uttered by a white person is offensive, then don't use it. It's just that simple. Similarly, If indigenous Americans say the use of their name, their likeness, or images and objects derived from their culture is offensive, then it is our responsibility to refrain from using them. It's really, at the end of the day, just that simple. The name Redskins always struck me as marginally offensive. When I learned what it actually meant, literally, it means a scalp carved from a person, the most valuable of which were butchered from either a woman's head or pubic area, then the discussion ended the name, the name needed to go. If the essence of the American story is the ever-increasing inclusiveness of the we and we the people, then the story of the first Americans as revealed by their experience in sports starkly suggests that the issues of sovereignty, accommodation, and assimilation, well all of those issues still remain unresolved. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come, oh, The sporting experience of African-Americans during slavery was driven by the demands of their masters. Slaves served as horse trainers and jockeys. Sometimes they fought as boxers or wrestlers in rough physical contests in which the ogling owners placed bets on the winner. Two experiences stand out. One smashes a still-current stereotype that blacks can't or won't swim. In the colonial era, when few white Americans of European ancestry could swim, you might recall that Benjamin Franklin taught his reluctant friends to swim. Well, during that period, African Americans brought with them from Africa their swimming skills. As the authors of sports in American history observe, slaves used their swimming ability in the rivers and ponds on or near plantations for both competitive and practical purposes. Of more lasting consequence than swimming, Male slaves became an integral part of the southern colonists' quarter-horse and thoroughbred racing culture. Horse racing was the premier sport on southern plantations. For the planters, it was a source of great pride and the focus of a lavish social and gambling culture. As gentlemen, the planters were themselves great horsemen. The care and maintenance of their horses, however, they left to their slaves. Some slaves became expert trainers and expert riders. At the horse racing meets, which were a major part of southern colonial culture, while the owners socialized with their peers, drinking and wagering on the races, it was the slaves who were the jockeys. In the immediate post-Civil War era, there was a brief blossoming of black political and social culture before a resurgent white supremacy during what became known as the Redemption, pushed it aside, and created the Jim Crow era. What is meant by the phrase, Jim Crow? The Compromise of 1877 gave the presidential election to Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, whose supporters brokered a deal with Southern Democrats to give Hayes the presidency in return for a promise to remove all federal troops from the South. This effectively ended Reconstruction. Free from federal authority, Southern states began to pass and enforce laws creating racial segregation. These laws remained in effect until the great Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s. They were upheld by the infamous 1896 Supreme Court decision Plessy v. Ferguson, which established the legality of separate but equal facilities in everything from public transportation to housing to education to residential restrictions. In short, the Jim Crow laws, sometimes known as Black Codes, created segregated America. The phrase, Jim Crow, comes from the 19th century minstrel shows. It was a derogatory term describing African Americans. It was voiced as an epithet, demeaning and denigrating African Americans. In sporting America, that period just before the redemption in Jim Crow took effect, well, that interval occasioned two phenomena about which most Americans are unaware. The excellence of African American jockeys and trainers and the presence of African Americans in professional baseball before they were banned in 1888. That was the call to the post. The winner of the first-ever Kentucky Derby in 1877 was Aristides, ridden by Oliver Lewis and trained by Ansel Williams. Lewis and Williams were African-Americans. African-American jockeys won seven of the first eight Kentucky Derbies and 15 of the first 28. Among the jockeys who won those derbies were Willie Sims, James Perkins, Alonzo, Lonnie Clayton, who happened to be the youngest to win at 15, William Walker, Isaac Murphy, and James, Jimmy Wingfield. Maybe the greatest of those jockeys, well, maybe the greatest of those jockeys was Wingfield. He finished third in his first derby in 1900, then won back-to-back derbies in 1901 and 1902, and finished second in 1903. Wingfield is one of only six jockeys ever to win back-to-back Kentucky Derby's. He is the last African American to win the Kentucky Derby. In his career, he won over 2,600 stakes races. In the late 1890s and early 1900s, with anti-black attitudes on the rise, black jockeys became the targets of abuse. White riders lobbied to get black jockeys banned. Black jockeys were assaulted by white riders who used their whips to crowd them into the rails. Wingfield received death threats from the Ku Klux Klan. In 1904, sickened by the increasing racism, Wingfield left the United States to race in Poland and Russia. For the next 50 years, his life reads like a movie script. In 1904, he won the Tsarist Triple Crown, the Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Warsaw Derbies. During the next ten years, he was Russian national champion, rode in Austria and Germany for a Polish prince, and earned over 100,000 rubles per year. In 1919, living in Odessa, he escaped the Russian Revolution by leading fellow jockeys and trainers in 200 thoroughbreds to Poland. Having made his way to Paris, in 1920 he continued his racing career, winning the Prix du Président de la Republique. He met and married an exiled Russian aristocrat. He retired in 1930 to breed and train horses on a property he bought in the French countryside. In 1941, now fleeing the Nazis, he returned to America. Confronted by American racial discrimination, he was reduced to working as a stable hand. By the early 1950s, he was back in France with a small racing stable. In 1960, he returned to the United States for medical care. Invited by Sports Illustrated to a pre-derby banquet in segregated Louisville, he and his daughter were denied entry because, because they were black. After an awkward wait and argument, Sports Illustrated got them admitted. Wingfield returned to Europe. He died in France in 1974. In 1921, Henry King was the last black jockey to ride in the Kentucky Derby. It'd be 79 years until another road in 2000. Marlon St. Julian finished 7th. Most people, if asked, who was the first African-American to play professional baseball, well, they'd probably answer Jackie Robinson. They'd also, they'd also be wrong. Just as in horse racing, during Reconstruction America, there was a brief flurry of African Americans in the newly emerging sport of professional baseball. The first African American professional baseball player was Bud Fowler, who in 1878, at the age of 14, played for an all-white professional team in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Regardless of your ethnicity, professional baseball of that era was at times a vagabond game. Between 1878 and 1904, when Fowler played in the newly emerging Negro Leagues, Fowler played for teams all across the American heartland, from Newcastle, Pennsylvania, to Niles, Ohio, to Keokuk, Iowa, in the Western League, to Pueblo, Colorado, to a laundry list of teams and towns. Other great black players of that era included Frank Grant and Moses Fleetwood Walker. Grant is generally considered to be the greatest African-American player of the 19th century, A power hitter, he led his team and league in slugging and extra base hits. Fast, he stole numerous bases and covered more ground in the infield than any player of the era, white or black. Playing for the Buffalo Bisons, Grant was the only black player before the 1940s to play for the same team three years in a row. Fleetwood Walker was the last black player to play professional Major League Baseball until Jackie Robinson in 1947. In 1883, Cap Anson, one of the great white players of the era and a founder of the National League, threatened to pull his team from a game against Walker's Toledo Blue Stockings. Over the next several years, Anson repeated his threats until, in 1887, he declared his teams would not play against the Newark Little Giants if either Walker or pitcher George Stovey played. To make a longish and, quite frankly, unpleasant story short, The other teams, some reluctantly, backed Anson and instituted a ban against all African American players. With this gentleman's agreement in place, by 1889, all black players were banished. The Gillette Cavalcade of Sports is on the air. That was the Gillette Cavalcade of Sports, the theme song from the Friday Night Fights, one of the most popular TV programs of the 1950s. That's getting ahead of the story, but... In the late 19th century, boxing captured the American sporting public's attention. Boxing was a somewhat tamer version of its more primitive progenitor, bare-knuckle fighting. Although its roots are ancient, in America, bare-knuckle fighting arose in the tavern culture of the mid-19th century tavern culture as 21st-century sports bar's great-great-grandfather. In the male-dominated taverns of the times, males gathered to drink beer and whiskey, talk sports, place bets, and watch fights. The greatest bare-knuckle fighter was the son of Irish immigrants, John L. Sullivan. He was, some assert, the first great American sports hero. Following the Marquis of Queensbury's rules, Boxing replaced bare-knuckle fighting as a more civilized form of fighting when Sullivan lost to Gentleman Jim Corbett in New Orleans in 1892. Wearing gloves, limited rounds, and rules forbidding eye-gouging, head-butting, and hitting below the waist gave the new sport a more civilized veneer. Civilized or not, it was still a segregated sport, lily-white in banning African Americans, who regardless, created their own fighting circuit whose boundaries reached beyond the United States. And its champion was Jack Johnson, the Galveston Giant. Johnson was born in Galveston, Texas, in 1878. He fought professionally from 1897 to 1928. In 1901, he lost a fight to Joe Choinsky, a white man in Galveston. They were both arrested because, because prize fighting was illegal in Texas. After they were released from jail, Choinsky, who was a trained fighter, taught Johnson how to box. He told Johnson that anyone who could move as fast as he did should never get hit. By 1903, Johnson had won the World Colored Heavyweight Championship. If John L. Sullivan was the first sporting personality to become a celebrity in the larger society, then Jack Johnson was the first African-American athlete to transcend his sport and become a cultural icon. In doing so, He challenged the prevailing white supremacist stereotypes and, as a result, was seen as a threat to society. He never flinched. He became a larger-than-life persona. It all began on Boxing Day 1908 in Sydney, Australia, when Johnson defeated a white man, the reigning heavyweight champion, Tommy Burns. Prior to beating Burns, Johnson could not get opponents to fight him because of racism. After beating Burns, there was a public outcry to find a white man who could beat Johnson. Johnson made himself a target for white racists because of his flashy, unapologetic lifestyle, his penchant for dating white women, and, finally, for marrying a white woman. An avowed white supremacist, novelist Jack London sought a great white hope to reclaim the heavyweight title for the white race. Tex Rickard, the great boxing promoter of the era, saw the opportunity for a massive payday. He arranged for Johnson to fight former heavyweight champion James J. Jeffries, who came out of retirement for the fight. Rickard arranged the fight for Reno, Nevada on July 4, 1910. It was called the Fight of the Century. Johnson totally dominated Jeffries, whose corner threw in the towel in the 15th round. Jeffries later said he couldn't have beat Johnson in his prime. John L. Sullivan said, Johnson won deservedly, fairly, and convincingly. After the fight, there were race riots throughout America. More aggravating for white Americans than Johnson's victories in the boxing ring was his pension for white women, of whom, of whom he married three. In 1912, Johnson was arrested for violating the MAN Act, which was a federal statute prohibiting transporting a woman across state lines for illicit purposes. It aimed at reducing trafficking for prostitution. The woman with Johnson at the time was his wife. Lucille Cameron. Because they were married, the case fell apart. But in 1913, Johnson was charged again for violating the Mann Act. This time, he was convicted by an all white jury, even though the woman was his wife. Johnson fled to Europe. Later, hoping to have the charges dropped and to be permitted to return to the United States, Johnson agreed to a heavyweight title fight in Havana, Cuba, against Jess Willard. Johnson lost. There have been repeated rumors that he threw the fight to ingratiate himself with American authorities. No one has been able to establish the truth of the allegations. Willard is generally thought to have won the fight legitimately. Regardless, when Johnson returned to the United States, he served a year in prison in 1920-21. Johnson's life has been the subject of numerous books, a Broadway play which was later made into a film starring James Earl Jones, The Great White Hope and a Ken Burns documentary, Unforgivable Blackness. Why has so much been written and said about Jack Johnson? Because, the boxing aside, Johnson's life crystallizes the issue of race in America. Johnson did the two things no black man was permitted to do in Jim Crow America. He beat a white man, fair and square, and he married a white woman. Still, bearing the scars of white America's reprisals, for daring to step outside Jim Crow's segregated boundaries, Johnson fought his last boxing match in November 1945, an exhibition raising funds for U.S. war bonds. He died in an automobile accident in 1946 in North Carolina after being refused service at an all-white diner and driving away angry and distracted. The 19th century closed with black players banned from professional baseball, and the 20th century opened with a black man heavyweight boxing champion of the world. As boxing fades into a marginal sport, it's hard for 21st century Americans to realize the cataclysmic impact of Jack Johnson's triumph. In the early 20th century, boxing, horse racing, baseball, and intercollegiate football dominated the American sporting landscape. Horse racing was the crown prince. But, if horse racing was crown prince, then boxing was king, and the heavyweight champion of the world was king of kings. Turning the world upside down, in 1908, a black man ruled as heavyweight champion of the world. It ignited a crusade among white supremacists to find a great white hope who would restore the natural order. It was only the first iteration of a boxing cycle that played out across the entire 20th century. And almost always, The cycle betrayed America's conflicted racial attitudes about who was in, who was out, who was white, who was black. A veritable stew of who do and who knew. At times, black boxers were the villains. At others, they were treated as honorary whites championing American freedom. In 1930, German Max Schmilling defeated American Jack Sharkey for the heavyweight crown. In 1936, Schmeling defended his championship, defeating African American Joe Lewis, the Brown Bomber. By the time of their rematch in 1938, Schmeling, representing Nazi Germany, unfairly came to symbolize the emerging enemy, just as in the 1936 Olympics, when African American Jesse Owens exploded Hitler's Aryan myth in 1938. White Americans found themselves in the conflicted position of having a black man as their avatar of freedom when Joe Lewis knocked out Schmeling in the first round. Lewis became a semi-beloved figure in American lore, but offstage, there always lurked the search for a white man who could beat him. In the early 1940s, Lewis fought a series of bouts with Billy Kahn. Lewis won, but they were close, hotly contested affairs. After World War II, Jersey Joe Walcott, Archie Moore, and Ezra Charles, all black, and Rocky Marciano replayed the cycle. Again, white Protestant Americans found themselves in an ambivalent position for Marciano, for Marciano was the son of Roman Catholic Italian immigrants. Hard as it might be for some to imagine in 2023, within my lifetime, Roman Catholics were made to feel un American and. Italian-Americans were discriminated against as not-quite-white. When Floyd Patterson won the heavyweight title in the late 1950s, the cycle repeated itself. In 1959, Swedish boxer Ingemar Johansson defeated Patterson, who reclaimed the title in two subsequent bouts. Patterson then found himself the focus of scorn from both Sonny Liston and a young Cassius Clay, who became an American icon as Muhammad Ali. Ali and Liston both claimed Patterson was not black enough, by which they meant his cultural attitudes. During the 1970s, Ali's major opponent, African-American Joe Frazier, found himself in the ambiguous and culturally fraught position of being the honorary white reclaiming the title from the unapologetically black Muhammad Ali. In his lifetime, Ali was both an American hero and an anti-hero. As an anti-hero, he opposed the war in Vietnam and became an outspoken champion of black civil rights and African-American advancement. As a hero, Americans of all hues came to admire his swagger, his resilience, and his total commitment to his religious and social beliefs. Completing the arc of his tumultuous life, he lit the Olympic flame at the 1996 Atlanta Summer Olympics. As the century wore on, Actual boxing faded in popularity. A quick question. Who in 2023 is the heavyweight champion of the world? If boxing faded, the cycle found new life in the movie Rocky, in which the underdog Rocky Balboa defeats the arrogant black champion Apollo Creed. Sylvester Stallone recreated the mythic cycle of a great white hope defeating the black champion restoring white self-esteem and pride. Although its surface theme of an underdog palooka, training by hammering sides of beef with his fist in a slaughterhouse cooler struck many a resonant chord, its perhaps unintended subliminal message played all the American racial tropes, just in reverse. On a personal note, as it turns out, I was at the March 24, 1975, Chuck the Bayome Bleeder Wepner, versus Muhammad Ali fight at the old Richfield Coliseum between Cleveland and Akron, Ohio that inspired Sylvester Stallone to create the entire Rocky film franchise. Curiously enough, I sat next to Marion Motley, who we'll meet in a few minutes, one of the greatest professional football players of all time. I sat next to Motley on the bus ride to the fight and sat behind him at the bout. He shared that he thought boxing was the toughest of all sports and... That Sugar Ray Robinson, the toughest guy he ever knew, because, as he said, in football you can always run out of bounds. If boxing reveals one step in the conflicted tango white and black Americans have danced with one another, then baseball and football reveal two more, as they first included, then excluded black Americans, and then, in the middle of the 20th century, grudgingly welcomed them back again. When Cap Anson in professional baseball's 1887 gentlemen's Agreement banned them, black ball players did not simply put their balls and bats away but they set out to create their own leagues. In the late 19th century, several leagues were founded, but soon floundered, such as 1887's the National Colored Baseball League and Frank Leland's Amateur Union Baseball Club on Chicago's South Side in 1888. After several false starts in the early 20th century, in 1910, Rube Foster, a great player of the era, revived the idea of an all-black league of teams owned by black businessmen. Unfortunately, World War I scuttled that plan. In 1920, Foster, an archetypal American entrepreneur, who, in addition to being a great ball player, was an even better promoter and executive, in 1920, Foster founded the Negro National League. It was a major league baseball operation. It included Foster's own Chicago American Giants and teams across the Midwest. Foster was a controversial figure to some but he was also a promotional genius who, as Robert Peterson says in Only the Ball Was White, worked long and hard to keep the young Negro League afloat. In 1923, an Eastern Colored League was formed. Although both it and the Negro National League were financially shaky, they persisted throughout the 1920s. From 1924 to 1927, their respective champions competed in an end-of-the-season Negro World Series. By the late 1920s and the early 1930s, however, under the pressure of the Great Depression, they collapsed. In 1932, Pittsburgh's Cumberland W. Posey attempted a new black league called the East-West League. Although it featured Posey's legendary Homestead Greys, that league failed in its first year. In 1933, another Pittsburgher, W.A. Gus Greenlee, operating Posey's great opponent the Pittsburgh Crawfords founded a new Negro National League. In 1937, a Negro American League was formed. Both leagues, although at times financially strained, finally flourished as the Depression lessened and World War II created an economic boom benefiting both black and white Americans. In addition to the Homestead Greys and the Pittsburgh Crawfords, Teams such as the Cleveland Buckeyes, the Newark Eagles, and the Kansas City Stars became well-known American institutions. The greatest of the players earned $1,000 per month, and showmen like Satchel Page earned as much as thirty dollars to $40,000 a year pitching, barnstorming, and making special appearances against teams comprised of both black and white stars. Babe Ruth once said that Page was the greatest pitcher he ever faced. I recall an exhibit I saw in the Negro League's Baseball Museum in Kansas City quoting Dizzy Dean, one of the great white pitchers of the era. Dean said that if old Satch and I pitched on the same team, we'd wrap up the pennant by the 4th of July and go fishing the rest of the summer until the World Series. Rivaling Major League Baseball in both popularity and revenue during the 1930s and 40s, Negro League stars such as Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Buck Leonard, Monty Irvin, James, Cole Papa Bell, and Rube Foster transcended their time. They are among the greatest players ever. They were finally admitted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in the 1970s and 1980s. Paige was the first admitted after a public plea from Ted Williams during his 1966 Hall of Fame induction speech when he said... Baseball gives every American boy a chance to excel not just to be as good as someone else, but to be better than someone else This is the nature of man and the name of the game And I've always been very lucky guy to have worn a baseball uniform To have struck out or to have hit a tape measure home run And I hope that someday the names of Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson in some way can be added as a symbol for the great Negro players that are not here only because they were not given a chance. In a great irony, Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson's 1947 breaking of the 1887 Gentlemen's Agreement led to the end of the Negro Leagues. The Negro National League was dead by 1948. The Negro American League held on until folding in 1960. The change was slow, but it quickened in the 1950s. In 1946, there were no black players in Major League Baseball. In 1947, there were three. Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby, and Hank Thompson. In 1948, with the play of Larry Doby and Satchel Paige aiding their cause, the Cleveland Indians won their second and last World Series. In 1949, Jackie Robinson was the first black player to win the National League Most Valuable Player Award. And in 1950, Erie, Pennsylvania's Sam Jethro won the National League Rookie of the Year Award. In the 1950s, Joined by Willie Mays, Monty Irvin, Don Newcomb, Roy Campanella, and Hank Aaron, Jackie Robinson's National League dominated baseball. Slowly, the American League followed Cleveland's lead. It took the New York Yankees until 1955 to sign a black player, Elston Howard. The last team to integrate was the Boston Red Sox in 1959 with infielder Elijah Pumpsey Green. In a previous episode on baseball music, we heard several great songs celebrating the integration of baseball. The Teniers' Willie Mays song and Buddy Johnson's See Jackie Robinson Hit That Ball. But the best was Chuck Berry's Brown-Eyed Handsome Man that John Fogerty celebrated in his baseball anthem, Centerfield. Here is the ending of Berry's classic Brown-Eyed Handsome Man Jackie Robinson rounding third and heading for home. Her mother told her, darling, go out and find yourself a brown-eyed handsome man Just like your daddy, he's a brown-eyed handsome man Marlowe Venus was a beautiful lass, she had the world in the palm of her hand She lost both her arms in a wrestling match to meet a brown-eyed handsome man She fought and won herself a brown-eyed handsome man Two, three, the count, with nobody on, he hit a high fly into the stand Round the third, he was headed for home, it was a brown-eyed, handsome man, that won the game, it was a brown-eyed, handsome man. Another personal aside, I've been a Cleveland baseball fan since 1954. I could tell you the starting lineup of that ill-fated team that won 111 games and lost the World Series to Willie Mays New York Giants. It's the fate of a Cleveland fan that the greatest catch in baseball history, your guy hit the ball. As frustrating as the Cleveland baseball franchise, now known as the Guardians, has been since its founding in 1901, it has led the way in racial and social progress. It has two very positive marks in its history. No, actually, it has three. Cleveland was the first American League team to have a black player, Larry Doby, in 1947. Of the 36 black players in either the American, National, or High Minor Leagues in 1949, 14 were with the Cleveland franchise. And Cleveland had the first black major league manager, Frank Robinson, in 1975, Let's hear it for Cleveland. asked, which professional sports league first broke the color line and readmitted black Americans, even serious sports fans and scholars would answer, Major League Baseball. They'd be wrong. It was professional football. The story follows a path similar to baseball's. In the early days of professional football, there were a number of black players. In the 1920s and early 30s, Greats such as Fritz Pollard, Bobby Marshall, Dave Myers, and Joe Lillard, the Midnight Express, played for the Chicago Cardinals. Then, in 1933, pressured by Washington's George Preston Marshall, who owned the only team south of the Mason-Dixon line, NFL owners banned black players. In 1946, the first professional sports leagues to integrate were the National Football League, the NFL, and the All-America Football Conference, the AAFC, a year before, a year before Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby played Major League Baseball. If we want to be technical, we'd say that the first black players in the NFL were Kenny Washington and Woody Strode. Both, in a nice historic coincidence, were college teammates of Jackie Robinson's at UCLA when the old Cleveland Rams moved to Los Angeles in the 1940s in order to use the publicly owned Los Angeles Coliseum they needed to integrate. Washington and Strode were their solution. Note, however, that I earlier said if you wanted to be technical, because in 1946, Paul Brown integrated the AAFC's Cleveland Browns by signing Marion Motley and Bill Willis. Yet another plus for Cleveland. Willis had played for Brown at Ohio State. Brown knew Motley from his time as a high school coach at Massillon, Ohio, whose arch-rival, Canton McKinley, starred Motley. Of course, in 1950, the NFL and the AAFC merged, forming the modern NFL. So, the first four black players in the NFL were Marion Motley, Bill Willis, Kenny Washington, and Woody Strode. Featuring Motley, Otto Graham, and several other future Hall of Famers, Browns Browns, they're named after him, won all four of the AAFC's championships, and the 1950 NFL Championship, their first year in the league. Were the Los Angeles Rams, Branch Rickey, and Paul Brown social activists seeking moral justice? I'm not sure. I've not been able to find any explanation other than access to the Los Angeles Coliseum that might have motivated the Rams... But I'll give Ricky and Brown credit for having, at the least, mixed motives. First and foremost, they wanted to win, but so did George Hallis, whose Chicago Bears wanted Kenny Washington in 1941 but couldn't muster the backbone, to borrow a phrase, to just do it. But Ricky, a shrewd businessman, was also a devout Methodist graduate of Ohio Wesleyan University. He planned for several years to integrate baseball as both a smart, competitive move and the right thing to do. Brown's high school teams at Maslin High School were integrated, as were his arch-rival Canton McKinley's teams, for whom Marion Motley played. Interest of full disclosure, I am an alumnus of Canton McKinley High School. Point is, Ricky and Brown's motives were quintessentially American, which is to say they mixed morality and money to find a winning combination. Twenty-first century ideologues of the right and the left both lose sight of the genius at the heart of American success. It's called compromise. Ricky and Brown didn't compromise exactly, but they mixed ambition and competitiveness with just enough moral sense to do, to quote Spike Lee, to do the right thing. Sports in the last half of the 20th century was at the epicenter of American social progress. Earl Lloyd integrated the NBA. Wilma Rudolph not only showed that girls could run, but that black girls could run and win an Olympic gold medal. Althea Gibson integrated a reluctant tennis world, winning at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. In 1965, Texas Western University won the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship with the first all-Black starting five. In that epochal year of 1968, Arthur Ashe was the first Black man to win the U.S. Open, and Tommy Smith and John Carlos took a stand for social justice, giving the Black Power salute at the Mexico City Olympics. In 1971, in the words of Paul Bear Bryant, Southern Cal Sam Cunningham did more for integration in the American South than anyone else when he demolished when he demolished Alabama's all-white football team spurring integrated sports in the Southeastern Conference throughout the era players like Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Michael Jordan transformed basketball into a black social experience in the city game And black men like Roberto Clemente, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, and LeBron James became voices of moral clarity demanding social justice and speaking out on behalf of their people. But work remains to be done. It is now sadly clear that the election of the first black president of the United States did not signal a post-racial America. In fact, it revealed quite the opposite—that race is the issue in American society. It is not only The issue, it is not the only issue in American society, but, until the question of race is somehow transcended, the great promise of America remains unfulfilled. Sports, which is so intimately woven into the fabric of American life and the weave of America's many stories, sports shows the promise of a better America every time we see a crowd of white and black people cheering for the same team, for the same athletes, everyone, for a moment, oblivious to color. America's challenge remains, how to make that moment, those moments, all the moments of American life. Some people will say those final words are bland and don't go anywhere. Fine, I don't pretend to have the answer other than to say. What other choice do we have? Sports teaches us that we're all in this together. Sports teaches us we're better competitively when we play as a team using all our people. And we're better morally when we leave no one behind and live up to the dictates of our creed to treat one another as we would wish to be treated. Sports teaches us that. It did for me at a very young age when on two occasions I heard different neighbors say things I've never forgotten. Once. I heard a neighbor using the N-word saying some revolting things about how bad black people were. I thought, that can't be right, because Willie Mays is black, and he's not like that. Later, I heard a neighbor using the N-word cheering for Ingemar Johansson to beat Floyd Patterson. I was for Patterson. Well, I was for Patterson because he was an American. At 12, I'd not yet developed any geopolitical sense, but Patterson was an American just like me. He was my guy. I asked myself, what's up with all of this? Well, now I know. That I have any sensitivity to these issues comes from those two experiences and the fact I went to an integrated public high school. In my time, it beat everyone. Well, maybe not Maslin. It beat everyone because it played as a team using all of its people. With the exception of military service. Sports teaches us with more emotional and more moral power than anything else in American life the absolute truth that we are at our best when we play as a team using all of our people. American tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Remember, past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserey Thank you.